Well, we're going to be in Mark's Gospel, the 11th chapter, if you want to make your way there with me this evening. And uh, just last week with my congregation, I was looking at um, what is popularly known as the triumphal entry there in the early verses of the 11th chapter of Mark's Gospel. And as we studied it together, we learned that it actually wasn't really triumphal. This wasn't a coronation of the king. The crowds shouted, yes, but Jesus didn't come to Jerusalem to be the king at that point. He came to die, not particularly triumphant in that regard. And then if you look down where we're going to start in verse 11, you find out it actually wasn't even an entry. The entry doesn't happen when the crowds are shouting. That's on the way into town. The entry happens in a sort of anticlimactic way in verse 11, and then we actually begin uh, in Jerusalem there in 11, and then uh, as we'll pick it up again tonight. So, I'm going to read through this passage that we'll be considering, and I'm, I'm going to, I've started something at my congregation that um, may, may be foreign to you here. Trust me, we haven't gone, you know, Roman Catholic or anything, but I, in order to honor this text as what it is, which is the very word of the living God, I ask my congregation to please stand with me as we read it to honor it as such. So if you're able and you will, would you please join me by standing as we read from God's Word. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it, and they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple, and he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. And were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. You may be seated. So if you were paying close attention there, you saw in verse 11, right, right where we started, there's the actual entry into Jerusalem, and boy, was it a brief one. You had the day, the day leading up to that event, you had the, what we know as the triumphal entry, where the crowds rejoice and shout to him as the son of David, heralding him as the messianic king. And no doubt that scene was reported, or if not noticed by, the authorities in Jerusalem, but now we've left all of that behind. We've left the the crowds, and it's just Jesus and the twelve, and he comes into the city, and he goes into the temple, and all he does is look around and leave out of town back to Bethany, the short distance to Bethany. So, what's the point? Why the entry into Jerusalem? What Jesus is doing there is 
a reconnaissance mission. He's doing reconnaissance for the action that he's planning for the next day. Now, we're going to get there, but first, we've got this kind of strange miracle, this destructive miracle. So, it's the next morning. This would be Tuesday of the Passion Week, and Jesus comes with the 12 disciples from Bethany to Jerusalem, and before they get there, on the way to the city, Jesus, Mark records, he's hungry, and he sees a fig tree with leaves on it a ways away, and he goes to the tree looking for figs, and he finds none, and then you have this strange pronouncement, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, Jesus says, to a tree. And of course, Mark records, and this is important, his disciples heard it. And Mark includes that detail because this is for their benefit, as we'll see in a minute. Now, I, I don't know if you've heard some of the wild speculation that I have on this particular event and this particular tree. Which variety? You know, there are different varieties of fig trees, and which one was this, and therefore what season would we be in? Or even maybe we should spend time narrowing down exactly what time of year this was. Maybe the prevailing wisdom is wrong. Maybe this is, is in fall or something. And I've heard some say that the leaves being out was a sure sign that it should have at least been producing what are known as early figs, which are edible, even if they're not particularly desirable, and Jesus was after those. And I've certainly heard people go on to speculate that this was a lesson about hypocrisy with the fig tree, right? Don't advertise that you have fruit, i.e. with the leaves, if you don't. I personally don't think we need to be quite that inventive here at this scene. Look at the end of verse 13. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. Mark uses the word for because it was not the season for figs, okay? That's the secret of why the fig tree had no fruit, had no figs. It wasn't the season for it. So, very simply, Jesus wants fruit. This tree has no fruit. So, he, as Peter will describe it later, he curses the tree. Okay, so he speaks the word to the tree. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And what happens to the tree? Well, you're going to have to wait six verses to find out. Because this is this kind of peculiar, peculiar to us thing that Mark does. And uh, I refer to it as sandwich stories. There's a fancy word for it. You can ask me later, but let's just call it a sandwich story. And, it, and it's described that way because Mark will start a story... He does this several times in his gospel. Start a story and then interrupt it with something like totally unrelated, seemingly, story. And then he'll go back and finish the story that he started it. And, and you know, Mark, these aren't like long stories, but he, he does this. And he's doing this here. He speaks the word to the tree, and then five verses go by, no tree. And then the tree is, is appearing again. And we've come to know this about Mark. He structures his writing this way in order to make a point. So, what's his point with the fig tree? Well, we're going to need to look at the middle of the sandwich, if you will, before we can see that. So, he leaves the tree, and now we're in town, and we have this scene of, uh, let's call it, clearing out the bandits. And boy, if I thought there was a lot of speculation about the fig tree... Uh, there's even more speculation about Jesus 
driving people out of the temple. And I've heard, and perhaps you've heard, that this scene and Jesus' anger here, it's about the sin of greed. Because these money changers, we, we know from history, they're charging exorbitant rates on their exchange, so they're effectively defrauding these poor pilgrims coming, as required by Moses, to the temple annually. They're defrauding them. And same with the sellers of pigeons and other sacrificial animals. Well, actually, we don't need to get inventive on this one either, because like the tree, this is pretty straightforward. In order to understand what's going on here with the cleansing of the temple, as we often call this, let's just stick to the facts here in our text, okay? What does Jesus do? What does He do? He does two things, right? He drives some people out, and He keeps some other people from entering or coming through. Right? That's, that's what he does. Whom does he drive out? Well, you've got there, you've got those who sold in the temple, and then you've got the money changers. And whom does he keep from entering? Well, they're described as those who were carrying things through the temple area. This is those using it as a, a thoroughfare for whatever business they had going on. That's what he does. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward, right? Why does he do it? Now, this is where we can get in trouble because some people have put together the fact that he drove out the sellers and the money changers on the one hand, and then on the other hand, you've got verse 17 in front of you here there where he says, they have made the temple of den of robbers, and they put those together and they say, there you go. The issue is the greed of the money changers and the sellers of the sacrificial animals, and that's what Jesus is reacting to here. But, 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 Look at your text more closely. Look at verse 15. I didn't mention somebody. Who else did Jesus drive out? Those who bought. Now you just figured out that this this can't be about the greed of the money changers and the sellers of the sacrificial animals. As evil as their practices may have been, that's not the issue here. Okay, then maybe the issue is the fact that commerce is happening at all. Maybe the issue is is the commerce. Maybe there should be no buying and selling involved in the worship of God. Well, we're getting closer. But before we land on that one, let's remember these services that are being provided here in the temple area, these are actually necessary or at least incredibly useful and helpful to those who would be coming to worship because You no doubt know there was a temple tax that they were required to pay, and they were required to pay it in that specific currency. And if you were coming on a pilgrimage from somewhere else in the empire to Jerusalem as as an observant Jew or proselyte, and you got into town, are you likely to have the required currency? No, that's not what you use at home. And so, Having someone there who could exchange your money for you to, into the currency that's required for you to pay your temple tax, that's helpful. That's very useful service. Helps you keep the law, in fact. And, of course, also, according to the law of Moses, animal sacrifices are required. You're required to present animals for sacrifice. And unless you want to travel the many, many miles potentially you had to go on foot up to Jerusalem with a dove in each hand, 
It sure would help if somebody were there to whom you could trade money for an animal that you were then required to present, wouldn't it? it it's it's kind of like having air conditioning in the auditorium. Uh, it's not required, but man, it's helpful in terms of worshiping the Lord. So, the problem wasn't that that commerce was happening. The problem is that they're doing that stuff, and probably there's also an issue with the fact that they're being greedy about it, but the problem is that they're doing that stuff where? On the grounds of the temple itself. They had caused the temple site itself to be focused and centered on that commercial activity rather than on the worship of God. So when you hear Jesus' words here, you see his focus is not on what they're doing, but where they're doing it. It it helps here to consider the words of promise in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 7, The Lord promised, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. That's the purpose of the house. That's the promise of the house. What have they made of the house instead? Jesus says it. He was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it what? A den of robbers. In fact, there's another, another issue implied in the promise that Isaiah recorded and in the words that Jesus quotes from him and adds. Because think about where is it that this trade is taking place exactly? I mean, you, you know roughly it's the temple, right? Well, the temple's not a single building. It's a, it's a site, right? And you remember from your Old Testament something about this site. You've got a building in the center, the holy place, and inside that you have the holy of holies into which only the high priest could go and into that only once a year. So that's not where the commerce is happening, right? We're not doing that in the holy of holies. Are we doing it outside of that in the holy place? Well, no, only the priests enter there. They serve there in the holy place. They're not doing their buying and selling in there. They're not doing it in the next kind of area outside of the holy place, which is known as the Israelites' courtyard. Who can go into the Israelites' courtyard? Yes, only Israelites, good guess, but also only Israelite men. That's not where the commerce is happening. And it's not even happening in the next kind of layer outside of that, which is known as the women's courtyard, which, as you might guess, is where Israelite women could go, but, of course, no further. It takes place in that last area outside the temple gates in what's known as the courtyard of the Gentiles. Now, you can guess what that area is for, right? Even if you don't know much about your Old Testament history. The courtyard of the Gentiles is the place designated by God where those who are from the nations beyond Israel, i.e. Gentiles, could come to worship Israel's God, Yahweh, the one true God. And so, if a Gentile were to come to worship Yahweh in his at this time, appointed place for his worship. If he comes, is he going to find a house of worship? 
No, he's going to find a commercial center, right? Full of bustling activity, or what Jesus called a den of robbers. And actually, that word that is translated in the ESV, robbers, if Mark used that word with you in his day, it would have a different general understanding that when, than what we think of when I say robbers. I say robber and you think like, stick them up, give me your money, right? This, if you heard this word in, in Mark's day, in common usage, you would, be, you would hear basically insurrectionist. You would hear a Jewish zealot nationalist whose primary concern was the liberation of the nation of Israel from Roman rule. And so Jesus says effectively to them, you've, you've turned the place where the nations should come to worship God into a place where you Israeli nationalists retreat like insurrectionists going back to their cave after a raid. You've turned it into an insurrectionist cave. In other words, you've turned the purpose of God's temple completely upside down. Now, whose fault is that? Whose fault is it that they're in this situation, that this is now an insurrectionist cave, a robber's den instead of a house of prayer, that the temple worship had been corrupted in this way? Well, there's fault to be had on the part of those corrupt traders, surely, yes. Apparently, from Jesus' action, there's also fault on the part of those who participated in that system by buying from them in that place. But, of course, you know where is ultimately the fault to be laid here? It's obviously on those who are in charge of temple worship, right? The fault goes right at the feet of the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. And believe me, they know it, right? Look at verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Now, did Jesus know they were going to respond like that? Of course he knew, because he's the one who arranged this entire scene in order to elicit that response. Remember, Monday night, he comes into the temple, looks around, goes back out to Bethany. That's a, that's a scouting mission to make the plans for the next day. Tuesday, he heads back in, and on the way, he makes this point of cursing this fig tree on purpose for his disciples to see and hear what he says to the tree. More on that in a minute. And then he enters the temple area, and he begins clearing it out. This is not a fit of anger on the part of the Lord. Okay, this is not Jesus walked into the temple and took a look around at the commercial activity, hustle and bustle going on and the swindling and all that and said, oy vey, what have they done? And loses his temper and drives them out and turns over the tables. This is not that. This is a planned statement of judgment against the corrupt temple worship and particularly against the corrupt leadership of the nation of Israel. It certainly accomplishes its desired effect with the leadership of Israel. They get the point. And then Jesus goes out. And now it's the next morning, Wednesday morning. They're on their way back, and now the disciples have the opportunity to learn the lesson of these two symbolic acts, the fig tree and the temple. 
because they're related, intimately related. Let's look at the meaning of this miracle. So, we're, we're now on the other side of Mark's sandwich story. We're back to the story of the fig tree in verse 20. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Why? That fig tree put out a lot of leaves, but it had no fruit. Never mind that it wasn't the season for fruit. That wasn't the point. The point was it didn't have any fruit, and so Jesus does this miracle to it. Now, all throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus has been doing lots and lots of miracles, but they, never, they do the opposite of this. He brings with miracles healing, restoration, wholeness. Here, this miracle brings death to this tree. Now, do you see the relation to the temple clearing? Because religious Israel is putting out a lot of leaves. They've got massive crowds coming to the temple just like Moses ordered, and they've got noisy worship to Yahweh streaming in and out of the temple of God, but there's no fruit. There's no true worship of God going on here, and there's certainly nothing for the nations. When Jesus finished cleansing the temple on Tuesday, and now they're headed back in on Wednesday, what does he expect to find when he gets there? Does he think when he leaves Tuesday, all right, got that mess cleaned up, got that reformed, now we'll be back to honest worship of the Lord? No. He knows when he comes in Wednesday morning, the tables are going to be set right back up and everyone is going to be back in business like nothing happened. And he does it anyway because his actions aren't an attempt to clean things up. They are symbolic. He is declaring judgment. He's doing as the prophets predicted. Jeremiah in chapter 8 we hear this word from the Lord, when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. I intend to gather them and they have no fruit. And Jesus uses that same metaphor. He just uses it with a literal fig tree here to show to His disciples that He has judged the temple, the religious practice, and the nation, just like the fig tree illustrated. Jesus, in other words, he, he spoke a word of judgment about Israel's temple worship when He said, you have made my house a den of robbers. Israel's corrupt religious system and its leaders are under judgment. And yeah, the, He hasn't been coronated yet. That's not what the scene a couple days ago at His entry was. It wasn't a coronation, but make no mistake, He is Israel's true King. And the true king of Israel has spoken a word of judgment. Now, here's what I want to think about with you for a minute. Because maybe you say, okay, I haven't been following with you all through Mark's gospel, but I, I get it, what you're saying here, right? This is pretty clear. Jesus is judging Israel's religious system. But I, well, I don't know about y'all down south, but at least us here at Redbridge, we are not part of Israel's religious system. We are part of the New Testament church, and that hasn't become 
corrupted? Well, may, may I suggest that before we just ignore this portion of Mark's gospel as irrelevant for us today, that we just consider together the parallels here of this judgment for the church. I, I was relieved when I came in to find that you had not installed, you know, a coffee shop and a bookstore and selling a bunch of stuff in the foyer, but I don't think that's the parallel here. If that were going on, I wouldn't have panicked. That's not the same issue as what's going on in Jerusalem, but losing sight of God's purpose for His church and turning it into something else, okay. Now, that has happened throughout church history, hasn't it? It happens in some of the earliest books of the New Testament, and it's happening right down to our day. And as I was meditating on this passage, I couldn't help but think of those New Testament warnings, and especially the parallels from this scene that we just looked at to Jesus' words to the seven churches in Revelation. We, 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 you, you don't have anything going on like people selling stuff in the foyer to the point of disrupting worship for those who would come. But, and, and we don't either, by the way, just report down south, but could we be tempted like the church at Ephesus was tempted to lose our first love? To let the busyness and the activities and the trappings of serving God in church life, let that crowd out our original love for Jesus Himself? Because Jesus' warning to Ephesus sounds every bit as dire as His words here in Judgment on the Temple. Listen to Revelation 2 verse 5. He tells the Ephesian church, "'Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent.'" Now, if not that, could perhaps you as a church or my church or any one of us become ensnared by false teaching? like the church in Pergamum? Because Jesus warns them in chapter 2 and verse 15 of Revelation, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Or maybe we keep our doctrinal beliefs all squared away and lined up, and we believe all the right things, but we become dead, just going through the motions, like the church in Sardis. Because listen to Jesus' words to them. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Or if not dead, could we become lukewarm, not caring deeply about the things of God, like the church in Laodicea? You remember Jesus' warning to them? He tells them, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
Now, in case it's not crystal clear here why I'm making this connection between the warnings to the churches in Revelation and the judgment on the temple in Jerusalem when Jesus came during the Passion Week, here's the issue. Jesus cares about our worship every bit as much as He cared about the worship or lack thereof that was going on in the temple in Jerusalem a few days before He died. You believe me? Jesus cares about our worship of Him, not just mine and yours, but our worship of Him every bit as much as He cared about the worship going on at the temple in Jerusalem. We would do well to listen to Him. And of course, all those words of warning, they don't change your view of Jesus, do they? They just remind you of who you're serving because you came to Him first and cling to Him still as you first knew Him, not as a firebrand temple cleanser, but as a gentle Savior who few days after the event that we just read about in Mark is going to give his life in order to turn rebels against God into true worshipers of God. What a Savior. Our Father, what a privilege to serve such a Savior. And what a glory to have the clarity of the Old Testament and the Gospels, and in particular tonight, this scene from within the confines of the temple in Israel, to see our Savior's heart for, passion for, concern for, true worship of You. And thank You, Lord, that before we could be made worshipers, the hostilities had to be ended. Your enmity against us because of our sin, and Lord, we thank You that Jesus did just that that He came to do just that, that even as He's cleansing the temple, He's not lost sight of the goal, His life in exchange for my life and my brothers and sisters here, their lives. And so, we glorify You in that great name of Jesus.